Thank you so much for coming, Joe, to our Existential Hope group and our Existential Hope podcast. So Joe is a researcher at Open Philanthropy or research analyst. Uh, and I think you're focusing mainly on existential risk from AI. And I know you also have a doctorate from University of Oxford in philosophy. And I've basically come across your writing, especially on utopias. And that's why I thought it would be really fun to have you here in the group, because I read your like thoughts on utopia actually possible article. And also I know you've written some stuff on infinite ethics that I'm really curious to hear about. And so, yeah, I thought it was like a perfect fit for coming on this podcast. Welcome. And maybe I'll just start with the first question being like, who are you? What are you working on? Like your life story in, in three minutes. Sure. So thanks. Thanks for having me. So I, yeah, I work on existential risk from AI and, and kind of more broadly on how we should orient towards the long-term future of humanity. And I got into that via philosophy and to some extent kind of interest in, in kind of big picture questions. And, and then that sort of connected me with folks who were thinking specifically about the future. And, and I think AI is an especially kind of pivotal technology with respect to how the future goes. So that's that's been my focus there. And then I, I so I, I do some philosophical work and writing independently. And then I also work at, at Open Philanthropy, which is a foundation that cares a lot about this kind of stuff. Yeah, wonderful. In terms of what you're working on, what does the normal uh, everyday life look like for you? as a researcher at OpenPhil? It's a lot of a lot of reading and writing and Slack and Google Docs. It's n- nothing too exotic. I think one I, I think unique aspect of my work at OpenPhil in particular is I think that OpenPhil is a uniquely a kind of unique intersection of kind of high-level philosophical considerations feeding into fairly object-level kind of choices and interventions and, and and grants and stuff like that. And so that's that's been especially exciting for me as as a philosopher. I think many philosophers are kind of hungry for translation of their of their ideas into into some sort of impact. And I think OpenPhil is a, is a cool chance to do that. Yeah. Would you want to maybe also just dive into anything in particular that you're researching now, I guess, focusing on AI? Yes. Right now, I'm I'm thinking about AI alignment and kind of ways ways we might, what, what sort of um, techniques and ideas and kind of plans are available for making sure that we can that our AI systems are kind of understood and and kind of are, are behaving in ways that are that are kind of beneficial for for humanity. At a, at a somewhat higher level, over the past six months or so, I've been I've been working on a kind of cluster of topics that assume we're going to have really transformational AI technology in the next within the next couple of decades, but that kind of scan the horizon for important features or, or important kind of levers, interventions, issues other than technical AI alignment to make sure a lot of the discourse at, at Open Philanthropy and, and to some extent more broadly in, in kind of various various nearby communities with respect to AI focuses on this on this question of alignment and, and kind of whether these systems will be kind of suitably under our control. And so I've, I've been looking at questions about just seeing if there's other things that we need that need to be on our radar too. So things about moral patienthood, things about kind of suffering, things about misuse risk. I've been interested in some questions about kind of 
yeah, some sort of especially galaxy brain stuff about infinities and kind of the multiverse and, and other other stuff. So I've been kind of kind of look, looking looking somewhat more broadly and seeing if there's other stuff that that we need to be thinking about. But then very recently, I've kind of pulled back to alignment. And so when you look at alignment and it's not technical alignment, is it like policy or what is it? Well, right now, I'm actually looking somewhat more at a somewhat more technical level at different proposals for for aligning AI systems. But I think, yeah, so I think it's probably closer to technical alignment than policy, but I, I think they they merge and I'm not I'm not I'm not doing ML experiments. It's it's at a, it's at a higher level than that. Yeah, does the um, I, I've been really curious to to dive into your infinite ethics writing. Does that go into what you're doing right now? And can you maybe just explain for someone who doesn't know infinite ethics what it is? Sure. So infinite ethics is basically ethical theory that tries to grapple with infinities in 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 kind of various respects. In particular, I think thinking about how you choose between actions that have some possibility of kind of impacting an infinite number of people or kind of otherwise having a kind of imp infinite impact on the world. Um, and then more broadly, you can also think about just like how you would rank different situations that involve infinite numbers of people. And I, I, this is, I think, an, an interesting and important topic at a theoretical level, because basically just most of our ethical theory is developed in a context that just ignores infinities. And that makes things very simple. But it's also, I think, instructive where you, insofar as when you bring the infinities in, suddenly a lot of these theories break and or or kind of and, and in fact, we can actually go further and, and show that there are a number of kind of impossibility results that you can get in infinite contexts where, you know, kind of a number of very attractive axioms or kind of ethical principles you, you might have thought were compatible are actually incompatible in in the infinite case. And so there's a kind of theoretical challenge. And I think there's also actually just a practical challenge, which is that there's some chance that we live in an infinite universe, there's some chance that we have we can have infinite Im impact in our actions. And so I think we actually face these questions in, in a practical context, too. And do you have an example of one of those things that you think we're taking for granted that it's working as an assumption today, but if we bring in the infinite aspect, it doesn't hold? Well, so yeah, I think a, a very simple one, there's a sort of reasoning that that people sometimes use in thinking about how much to prioritize the long-term future, which which sort of made famous by Nick Bostrom in this piece, Astronomical Waste, where he basically, he does a, a quick kind of back-of-the-envelope calculation as to how many people might exist in the future and gets this sort of astronomical number and expectation in virtue of kind of the possibility that we go out and and kind of um, settle the stars and, and turn them into kind of optimal computational substrate and run mines on them and, and stuff like that. And so you get like 10 to the 50 people could exist in expectation in the future. And so then if you if, if there's an event that kind of cancels that future, an existential risk, then then the thought is that that's sort of this kind of astronomical catastrophe and reducing it um, is sort of in in sort of utilitarian terms, reducing the probability of, of existential risk should be a sort of overwhelming ethical priority. So that argument relies on a combination of a kind of a certain sort of population ethics that values these future people at a, in a certain way. And then it also relies on a certain kind of expected value reasoning where you're you're basically kind of yeah there's a kind of a standard way of doing expected value reasoning where you you wait you wait this the actions by the different worlds and what they do and and how much how much value is at stake in, in each of those worlds but if you try to do that with infinities it just breaks immediately or or at least it, it so if you, if you have different infinite outcomes with sort of infinite value at stake you have some probability of of 
doing doing infinite harm and some probability of doing infinite goodness. Or you have some actions that will do both, will help an infinite number of people and hurt an infinite number of people at the same time. And if you rearrange it, so basically, I think that's that's like a, a very basic early way that infin- infinity start to matter is is to if you're doing EV reasoning, it's just it just gets a lot harder. And, and actually, we are doing EV reasoning quite a lot, or many arguments are made in those terms, but but they just sort of bracket bracket the infinite case. And if we try to get more concrete in terms of this, or like concrete in terms of thinking about the future, because you you wrote this post like thoughts on utopia and that it's like actually possible. So, well, maybe we dive into that a little bit because first of all, you suggest that there are like two different types of utopias. Yeah, maybe explain those two different versions first. Sure. So th- the post distinguishes between what I call concrete utopias and sublime utopias. And, and concrete utopias are basically just utopias that are described in concrete ways that we can kind of directly imagine and 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 kind of engage with. In, and, and so a lot of like fictional utopias and and uh, and and even some of the kind of political philosophy that tries to deal with utopias is often you're talking about a, a, a situation with humans and you're imagining them in maybe kind of somewhat rearranged political structures. Maybe they have more abundance. Maybe there's a certain vibe. Often people are actually secretly trying to describe a dystopia and it's sort of kind of point out point out the flaws with something that would have seemed good. And my my worry about so and and so I'm I'm kind of more resistant to to concrete utopias basically because I, I worry that they're going to undersell what's possibly at stake and just how good the future could be. And so that I there's this example in the post that I, I get from Nick Bostrom, which says, if you imagine kind of kind of early primates deciding whether to evolve into humans, and they're sort of given this given this chance to imagine the future that that they could have if if they sort of evolved into humans and and they ask the question they ask is something like, okay, but you know, will we get a lot of bananas? If you no, know, if we if we become human, and and they will, it's not it's not that we we actually have quite a lot of bananas now, but it's sort of not the right question to be asking. There's some way in which you're missing what's important or what's really at stake at stake in kind of this this horizon that's in some sense beyond your comprehension. And I'm personally more more sympathetic to kind of modes of engagement with with utopia that that route via what what I, I'm calling the sort of the sublime conception of utopia that that tries to find ways to which is basically kind of conceiving of utopia in a way that foregrounds its kind of otherness and incomprehensibility, but also where that otherness and incomprehensibility is in some sense an extension of the direction that things travel when they become better. And I think that has downsides too. It it can kind of be empty of content. It can lose kind of the resonance with our direct emotional experience. But I think it's also, I think it's more accurate and I think it can be, there are ways of kind of getting a grip on it that, that, that bring it to life. Yeah, I, I think also your, I guess, boss, Holden Kronowski wrote, has written this thing also on the like conservative utopias towards more radical utopias. And I, I, I also find that one because what's interesting, I guess, in terms of this concrete utopia versus the more sublime ju- utopia is, well, what you're saying, like our capacity to imagine like grand futures or like greatness in the future, I guess. But then there's also like the the trade-off with the more sublime you go, maybe that's like you you lose a few people along the way. And so, yeah, there's this, what he writes about, like with this, the the conservative utopia, I think is like the world as it is minus cancer or something like that. And so that's that. Yeah, that's a bit too boring maybe for most of us. But I guess this somewhere in between that I think is more like imagining an episode of Friends or something like that, where like everyone is sort of, they have their material needs met, but 
the, the challenges that we face or like in our love life or something like this, but still like fairly similar to, to this world. Personally, like what are your, what are your first, what is your personal, this is where I would like to go. And then secondly, what do you think is the best in terms of communicating utopia or trying to get more people on board with the ideas or thinking about it or getting excited about it? Cool. Yeah. So let me, let me, I think they're somewhat different in that. And it, and it also does depend on, on kind of how people are orienting. I do think, I do think at a basic level, there's sort of two steps in my kind of conception of utopia. One it has to do with a kind of lower bound, which is sort of the extrapolation of the no more cancer thing where you just, you just think about the truly, the true kind of horrors of the world, kind of poverty and disease and, and death and oppression and, and, and not the sort of, oh, maybe it's ultimately good to have a little bit of it or, or people, people can get sort of like, oh, maybe it's good. But I, I think of the stuff that's really, it's just like this should end. And I think, and I think the, there's a basic, and I think very deep feature of, of at the very least, we can just end the kind of the horrors of this world. And there, there are questions at the edges around exactly what that looks like. And, and, but I think there's something about just kind of making gentle the life of this world, at least, which you don't need to get into kind of crazy transhumanist anythings to, I think, resonate with. I think that's a kind of lower bound. And then I think we don't know what the what the upper bound is. And I think people have different appetites for um, kind of alienness in that respect. I think my my own favored way of engaging with it and also what I, both both in terms of presenting it to others and to myself is using a, a method that I call kind of extrapolating the direction of our best experiences or best kind of collective or individual experiences. You imagine there are these, it's a notable feature of of just our everyday human lives for, for many of us that that the best moments, whether you know by ourselves or with others, or that there are there are times that are just kind of remarkably better than the kind of the average or or the mundane. And whether that's some kind of experience of love or music or people who do drugs or meditation or there's different sort of peak experiences of 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 different kinds where you, know, you have this and it's really a kind of whoa, this is different. This is a kind of degree of aliveness and reality that is kind of a qualitative shift from from some sort of baseline. And I think so it, I think we just know we know that that is possible. We we just see that, that at the very least life can be as good as the best it has ever been for anyone. <laughs> and that's really good and it's actually it's it's easy to kind of forget how good things can be there. It's just generally there's some, something that's hard about remembering kind of really intense experiences, maybe especially really good experiences when you're not having them. You're sort of, you remember it was really amazing, but you're kind of, ah, you maybe be kind of small and, and caught up in some, some kind of more mundane fog. And it can be hard to stay in connection with that. But when you're there, you're like, wow. So at the very least we can get that. I think that's like another step above a kind of lower bound. And then I think, but really, I think what we should do is, is see the direction that our minds or our lives or our communities moved when they became that kind of qualitative level of better. And then look look that direction and then sort of extrapolate, okay, suppose you could go much, much further in that direction. What would that, what would that be? And I think we basically also know that that's possible too, especially with respect to kind of individual experience. I think it seems very, very likely to me that our capacity for kind of good experiences in some sense gated or constrained by by our brains and our kind of specific contingencies of our of our current biology and 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 so the kind of space of minds that we currently occupy is is really tiny and i think it just seems 
if, if you really imagine being able to explore the whole space of ways of being and ways of arranging our minds and our communities and our relationships and all sorts of stuff, to me, it seems very likely that there's just a kind of an expansion of scale and, and that that is kind of really quite radical. And it's not, it's not just a sort of pretty version of, of our current world. It's really something profoundly different, but still, I think, recognizable as an extension of, of what's good, what's good now. Yeah, I, I like that idea of having it somewhat recognizable. I think that, yeah, I guess I've spent some time in the foresight community now, and I think a lot, we have a lot of transhumanist and post-humanist members. So a lot of the futures that are being discussed there, are like mind uploading or these types of things, I'm, I'm starting to feel like kind of familiar with, and it's starting to feel less alien, but it does seem when communicating on a broader scale, it's been my experience that you need to like have the humans in the future, I guess. But I, I'd be curious to hear about if, if you think it's important to think about these things or like what function it feels to think about the future or to think about utopia. I think it is important. And I think that partly because, well, A, just at a basic level, and this is one of the things I say in that essay, is just that I think it's just true. I think it's just true that the future could be this good. And so for I think our prior should be if there's a if there's a, a fact, it's good to kind of recognize that recognize that fact and especially if it seems kind of like it might be relevant to our conception of our situation and, and our goals. I don't think there's like a big burden of proof on on kind of recognizing this. Now I do think there's a kind of history of failure modes with respect to kind of human engagement with the notion of utopia. And I think that's important to have in mind. But just don't think about it, I think is a a kind of mm, mm, strange strange conclusion. I think for me on top of that, there's a just a basic way in which it's a source of hope. I mean, this this series of existential hope, I think, I think is actually quite it's important to our sense of the stakes of what what we do. And 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 there's a way I think sometimes our culture can discourage people from inhabiting and taking seriously their sort of deepest aspirations and dreams and the, the sort of like best. There's a kind of there's a way in which sort of cynicism and uh kind of various curtailings of your your like aspirations for life and your kind of devotion to life i think people if people can get there's something that's kind of cool or, or maybe safe about being more like jaded or more kind of despairing or more pessimistic or something like that and i think i think we can talk about that but one thing i think is wrong i think i think people empirically it's just the case that in fact things might well be extraordinary in the future now i'm not sure we got to and we have to do our part in that respect but I also think kind of knowing that it gives you a sense of what what is the actual story that we're a part of here? What what is the what are the stakes? What when it's sort of a different narrative arc or possible narrative arc in your sense of kind of the culmination of the human story and kind of what human pain and joy and and kind of striving will have ultimately been a part of if we if we get things right. So for me, it's just a kind of important structural feature of how I orient towards towards my own choices and towards my sense of kind of what's going on. Yeah, I am. Um, I, I, I appreciate that, obviously, working with this project. So I think then I'm going to try to back up a bit and ask you what, if you would describe yourself as optimistic about the future and, and if so, like what made you, and if not, why not? I think I'm probably optimistic relative to a sort of baseline there's there's a sort of 
way of engaging with the future that sort of maybe hasn't done very much in the way of kind of imagining grand, very long-term futures and instead thinks about the future centrally through questions about, oh, what's going to happen with climate change? Or does it seem like our political system is is on a good trajectory or a bad trajectory? Sort of a few centuries out and kind of centrally with reference to current political conditions or or kind of current issues. And I think that it's easy for... I, it seems both on on the left and on the right. I'm not sure there's a kind of hopeful party or hopeful kind of political sense. Everyone everyone maybe gets more oomph out of out of pessimism. And so I think I'm probably optimistic relative to that that baseline. I think there's a different baseline that I am kind of more pessimistic relative to, which is there's a there's a, a sort of worldview made famous by kind of Steven Pinker and I think kind of represented by by to some extent maybe the there's a kind of pro-growth. I think transhumanists have some of this, some of this vibe or have in the past, where in some sense, the kind of the forces in the world, we've seen sort of massive improvements in the world along tons of dimensions, poverty, kind of literacy, democracy over over the past century and a half or something like that. And I think it, there's a there's a narrative that I feel drawn to in ways that sort of if we just kind of keep keep going with that, then we're we're just on on a kind of a great trajectory. And I think I am more Relative to people with that specific view, which I, I kind of wish I could hold, I, I have more concern about sort of ways of kind of irreversibly messing up. And and my work on AI is is a big part of that. And then I think there are, unfortunately, a variety of other ways in which we could kind of drastically curtail the value the value at stake in the future. I take that that pretty seriously. I don't spend a lot of time. I'm, I'm and in that respect, I'm more optimistic than say Eliezer Yurkowski, who thinks we're sort of definitely, definitely doomed and, and and stuff like that. But it's it's still, in some sense, I'm spending most of my time paying attention to the worst case scenarios, and in that sense, don't don't look like a like an optimist. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you about that as well. Existential risk seems obvious that we should pay attention to the 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 term existential hope we took from a paper by Toby Ord and Owen Cotton Barrett, where they it was called existential risk and existential hope, and they were trying to define both of the concepts. And so, yeah, how how do you relate to the to both of the concepts? Obviously, like in your everyday life, most of the actions you take seem to be focused on existential risk or like preventing existential risk. But yeah, I suppose it's somewhat driven by existential hope angle or something. Yeah, I think there. Are, I think it is driven by by existential hope. I mean, in some sense. The way many people, and I actually think this is a sort of problematic or, or mm, insufficiently questioned aspect of the discourse around existential risk, because there's an assumption that there's kind of the future you get if you don't fall prey to an existential risk, where the assumption is that future is kind of massively, massively good in expectation. And so in some sense, you kind of, you get the Steven Pinker narrative unless you fall off the train. You're sort of on this upward trajectory, but that the, the, the existential risk community adds the the concern that you're going to kind of fall off but if you don't fall off then it's all up and up you know to the stars and 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 the kind of blissful light i think so that narrative i think is actually quite a hopeful one and and in some sense you'll see that so there's a, there are communities of people who are much more pessimistic about what the default future looks like and think it might be in, in the limit it could be kind of net negative and actively bad to make it to the future or something like that and those people will be correspondingly less worried about existential risk and more interested in in things like 
improving the future conditional on it being very long or, or sort of making sure there isn't a lot of suffering in the future or something like that, which is a somewhat different orientation. I'm more in the mode of, I, I, so I'm, I'm actually less, I, I think there's a lot of bad futures even without sort of existential risk. I think we could just, we could have things that aren't kind of a, an irreversible lock-in event, something that's not a sort of discrete thing. We could have just like mediocrity. We could just like mess up along tons of dimensions. So I think I'm not, there's a, a, a form of, a form of hope that I'm, 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 I don't have, which is just as long as we don't mess up totally irrevocably, then everything will be good. I, I think, and I think there might actually be more effort to be made with respect to kind of attending to worlds where we, where we don't have a, a kind of traditional existential risk, but nevertheless need to improve it. But, but ultimately, yes, I think, I think making it to these sort of like really, really hopeful scenarios is, is a lot of what, a lot of what drives me. In in general, what would you say makes you excited about the long term future? Yeah, I think it's. I mean, I think it's a lot of what I said. What I said about kind of ending the horrors and kind of going the distance in terms of how 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 good things things can be. I think. I mean, there's another uh, maybe another dimension of that for me personally, though it's less clear how this scales. Is I think I care a lot about some sort of comprehension or kind of truth knowledge related value where i think right now in addition to kind of being small in our capacity for kind of welfare and 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 joy i think we're also just sort of radically under comprehending of our situation we kind of aren't able to look the universe in the eye there's a huge amount that we don't know we're sort of these just kind of earliest stage of becoming aware of what's really going on and i think i think there's a part of me that just cares about kind of seeing seeing truly or or having having our civilization at some point kind of understand understand its situation fully that that's a, i think an animating value for me less clear how it plays into kind of how you value this the scenarios overall yeah we we usually in this podcast in ask for a specific positive vision of the future if you have one well yeah could you share a vision of existential hope for the future and yeah the the way that we also do it in this podcast is that like we try to take that you catastrophe from the the paper by Toby and Owen so basically the opposite of a catastrophe so an event where there is much more value after it has happened and we try to use now nowadays we use like AI art generators to to create an art piece based on this prompt yeah if you if you could please share a positive vision of the future or a you catastrophe Yeah, so I don't have a a especially concrete one. As I say, I tend to I tend to prefer the sort of sublime mode of of conceiving of the future. I, one, I mean, one thing that comes to mind for me there. There's a line in Corinthians of, about something like, "Now we see as in a mirror dimly, then then we will see face to face, and now now we know in part, then then we then we will know in full." And, and so I think I, I I guess maybe that's sort of an important image for me is sort of meeting each other and and the universe in some sense, face, face to face or, or, or seeing less dimly than, than we do now. Basically seeing clearly. Yeah. I, I like that. I find when, whenever I speak to, I don't know, both scientists and philosophers, like a lot of it is about like seeing reality or learning more about reality seems to be like the, the endless pursuit somehow. Well, there's also like this, the, the term you catastrophe, actually, we, we, yeah, it's, it's a terrible word and we we we've tried to find better better yeah versions of it so if you if you have any proposals for what we should call it instead we're very happy to take them 
yeah, do you? It's also okay if you don't. I wonder about something like existential victory, something like that. I mean, it, it seems like the, the big disadvantage of you catastrophe is that it's got the word catastrophe in it. And so it's just very hard for, for that to be good. Anyway, so I wonder about kind of centrally replacing that one. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that also. I One of the more common suggestions is like anastrophe, but then we're again with a strophe. So yeah, I, I think something like existential victory sounds good. Well, so I think then in terms of, I mean, your your vision was very broader, like it was it was hard to define, but in terms of trying to think of what you think would be like us moving in the right direction, obviously AI risk is is a big one for you. Are there any like other undervalued risks or challenges that you think we need to get around to to solving for making sure we're on the right trajectory? Yeah, so I think I think we need to be doing a lot more to prepare for kind of treating digital minds well and and thinking about how are, I think there's a, a lot of new questions that are going to arise if we if we get to a point where we can kind of create agents and kind of forms of artificial intelligence that in some sense we we control or we have sufficient understanding of that we can kind of direct them for our ends there's still a question of well what what is the sort of moral status of, of different sorts of minds you're creating in that respect? What is the right set of kind of rights and protections to give to give to those minds? And then there's a sort of cluster of related issues, I think, that actually have more to do with how do our social and political and legal systems adapt uh, in the face of new, just sort of new practical features of 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 the sort of population at. at once, once we're we're talking about digital minds, so I think a very concrete example in a, in a paper from from Bostrom and and Shulman that I like is there. So we have this sort of deep deep principle in democracies of one person, one vote. But there's a question of okay, once once you can kind of copy, you can make more citizens very easily. One, if you have like more GPUs, say, and I can I can make a bunch of copies of myself, or oh, if they don't count as as distinct people, well, maybe I tweak them a little bit, and then they vote, and then they maybe they get deleted or collapse back, or, or who knows. So there's just I think there's like really tough questions about how do we how do we start to govern and kind of allocate influence and kind of once once a lot of the kind of people or or minds or or kind of kind of stakeholders are are digital and i think related questions how do we make sure at a certain point if you're if you're a sadist or or a kind of person without a conscience or who knows you will be able to kind of create kind of horrible you'll be able to create kind of suffering on if you have a computer and that's just how are we going to govern that and and we currently you can't just like grab i mean we have these questions about animals but it's it's not possible to just grab a human and, and kind of do what you like with them but there's a way in which kind of digital minds are are kind of uh at the whim of of the kind of people that control their hardware in a way that i think we aren't we aren't ready for so there's a bunch of just like a bunch of questions there that i think partly don't get as much attention in virtue of this narrative that I that I tried to push back on a little bit of well if we if we solve if we don't if we don't have the existential risk then everything will be good and we'll figure everything out and i think a lot of what i'm worried about is well maybe we don't all die or we don't have a sort of ai takeover but we nevertheless kind of fail to take seriously enough the the kind of rights and and moral status and and kind of stakes of what what's happening with digital minds more broadly and obviously there's like a long history of of kind of oppression of of, of different minds especially kind of non-human or, or kind of outgroup outgroup type of mind so that's that's like a big one a big one for me that i'd flag and, there, and there's various others yeah no that that's a super interesting one that i haven't really heard a lot about before but yeah and it's and it's very interesting also in the in the relation to like how how we treat animals and 
yeah, these things. But do you have any recommended reading? Is it that paper by Bostrom and Schulman, if, if one wants to look into this? I think that would be the place I would start. Yeah, it's a, it's a paper called Propositions Concerning Digital Minds and Society. There's also another good good paper by them that's kind of more philosophical called, I think it's called Sharing the World with Digital Minds, which gets into kind of questions about ways in which for kind of any conception of moral patienthood, you can actually pretty easily start to see digital minds as, as capable of what they call like super patienthood, which is their kind of more neutral term for what's in other contexts called a utility monster or something that in virtue of something that's sort of in virtue of its capacity for for preference satisfaction or welfare or or whatever it is that you care about kind of outweighs a bunch of other things and, and in in particular in this context humans and so th- there's some some tough questions there too I, but i re- i would start with the the propositions concerning digital minds paper i think that's just really great work yeah thank you is and in terms of your work on on ai alignment is there there's so much happening there right now is there I don't know what your timeline is, but like within the next five years, is there anything in particular, uh, any any like breakthrough or thing you would want to see us have in place in the next five years to make sure that, or like to make you feel a little bit like we're on the right track? Well, if I, I think things that would make me feel substantially more optimistic over the next five years, if I get to just ask for them, I think there are, I think if we just understood what was going on in neural networks much, much better than than we do, and in particular, if we were at a point of being able to kind of re-engineer or kind of create using kind of more traditional programming methods or kind of human-readable code systems that were as capable as GPT-4 or kind of reverse engineer what's going on in GPT-4, just sort of radical progress and in interpretability, I think, is relatively easy to imagine. Though, or sorry, it's easy to imagine like how we know that that had happened. I think it's it's quite difficult to actually do it, and we're just sort of very, very far away. But I think a fairly deep intuition for why we are not ready for for AI and why AI alignment is a serious problem is just that we are we we don't know how these systems work. We we're we're kind of working with black boxes and and that just doesn't look like a recipe for kind of handling the 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 kind of hottest fire we've we've ever had to we've ever tried to handle. So I, I think that's 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 something I would love to see. Yeah, I think somewhat more realistically, I think there are like good forms of coordination and and regulation and evaluation and kind of auditing regimes that the world could could kind of converge on in the next five years. I think that's like more realistic. I think it's there's a still a question of how much that gets you. And obviously there are questions about the right way to do that. But I think very broadly we want to be getting to a point where we we have kind of quantitative consensus tests such that if your AI is is like very is capable of replicating itself, if connected to the internet internet is capable of like escaping and and replicating itself and spreading. We know we know that before you deploy and we don't deploy it or something like that. And if your AI will will kind of help people build bioweapons much better than Google or something like that, well we know that. And just like a bunch of a bunch of kind of concrete things that kind of gate the deployment of systems and that we have kind of effective effective coordination across kind of across the relevant actors such that there aren't just people can't just search ahead unilaterally. I think I think would also would also help with my optimism though. There's still a lot to do even if we get that. Yeah, I thank you for sharing that. I think that in, in terms of you working on AI alignment and these things is there if if we imagine someone young new to this field, would you be able to just provide a bit of a like overview of of this field that you're operating in and suggest if they're like what are the possibilities and the challenges sure i guess at a high level there's kind of 
with respect to AI alignment, AI alignment, especially the form I'm concerned about is kind of making sure that we, by the time we're deploying kind of very advanced AI systems, we are able to kind of aim them and control them in ways in ways that that result in kind of alignment with our intentions. The very broadly, you can break that down into kind of governance related work, which is about kind of setting up the, the kind of social and political and kind of coordination environment to kind of implement whatever technical solutions are required to, to kind of cause cause the AI systems we deploy to have have the relevant kind of safety and alignment properties. And then there's the kind of technical work of figuring out what those techniques are. Within the technical side, I think the biggest breakdown in my head is sort of work that is focused on, there's, there's sort of interpretability, which which is focused on kind of understanding the internals of, of these models and kind of building up a better a better understanding of, of, of how they're they're doing the tasks that they're doing. I think that that work is really great if you can get it, but I think it's my own read is that it's like very, very far behind and, and unlikely to, to or I, I think I think we probably should not be banking, especially in shorter timeline scenarios on, on kind of interpretability, making making a bunch of progress that helps us, for example, like check if our if our models are um, lying to us and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm more personally interested in work on what's called scalable oversight, which is effectively. So right now, the way you, you train a model and make sure that is the, the kind of default way you make sure it's it's kind of behaving in accordance with your intentions is this process called reinforcement learning from from human feedback or RLHF, where basically, you know, you have the model, you have humans, roughly speaking, observing what it's doing and kind of rating it um, and whether whether it's it's doing it's behaving well. And then you you kind of update the update the model. So it's, it's more likely to behave in, in ways that are that are given high ratings. The, the issue is that 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 works once when humans can evaluate how good the behavior is. Or it seems like more, it's sort of more effective in that in that regime. But if we if we start to move into a regime where the models are doing kind of incredibly complicated things that humans can't evaluate because it kind of they're smarter than humans, so the model gives you this like giant code code base and it's like here here's all this code, you know what what's can run it or or it starts it starts doing much physics that human can't understand or 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 all sorts of things. It's a question of how do you scale how do you scale our ability to kind of provide oversight for these models? And there's a bunch of work on that. I, I think that's that's the area I'm most. I I kind of am most excited about it and would kind of direct direct a kind of generic, technically talented young person towards maybe maybe first. Yeah, that seems like very very important work to to be doing at, at this time. And so, if we if we go back to well, actually, no. Do you have any any reading recommendations or listening recommendations to to learn about this? To learn about AI alignment. Yeah, start good starting material. Hmm. Well, let's see. I mean, I I have a long report that I wrote about the kind of nature of the problems. That's that's and there's a number of other people, Ajay Akatra, Richard No, have 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 pieces that kind of try to lay out the basics of like why is why is this an issue, and then in terms of kind of somewhat more detailed, like what different research avenues. I mean, I recommend look if you're interested in interpretability, I would recommend looking at Chris Ola's work. I think if you're if you're interested in scalable oversight, I would I would recommend maybe starting with Paul Cristiano's work and kind of related work on on there's debate. There's sort of a variety of different ideas for how to do scalable oversight and and Paul is maybe a good place to start there. Thank you. So we're have like 10 minutes left. And so I want to just dive in to go back to the the sort of the root, like the extent hope positive future angle. And so I think the first question that I'll ask then is, it seems really hard for people to think or envision positive futures for the long-term future, especially I think, whereas like envisioning dystopias is easier, we have this, that's what we're sort of seeing in most of our fiction and um, yeah, that we're, that we're being sort of fed today culturally. So 
why do you think that is? And I think, how do you think we can like best change that? Why is it? I mean, I don't, I don't have a great, great story about why. I think there are various. Yeah, I don't have a great story about why. One, one thing I'll say is I think, fiction-wise, there is, there are some pressures towards having a plot and plots require like tension and so it's, it's sort of you have a really really good utopia i mean there are these sort of in some sense stories about many i don't know rich people who have all their needs met are like kind of like utopia or it's they're sort of like you've got like maybe you still have your emotional problems or your like status anxieties and stuff like that but maybe we could do better than that in utopia but so there's i don't know that's one pressure maybe maybe whatever it is that makes people so negative even in the midst of kind of the world improving in a lot of ways, whatever, whatever makes people really feel like the world's on a downward trajectory, even even kind of contrary to, to some of the some some of the data could play a role. I'm not sure. And then in terms of changing, I do think just yeah, getting compelling positive visions that really kind of speak to people's deepest aspirations, especially in a way that I think, I, I don't know, there's something kind of vulnerable about having just like really direct hope for something really amazing. I think I think sometimes people, the kind of more you hope, the more you're kind of setting yourself up for disappointment or something, or there's some, some way in which if you really, really caring about something is 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 scary. So finding ways to, and, and then there's also sort of questions people do have these worries about utopia, utopic, utopic thinking and kind of extremism and, and ways in which that's gone wrong. And I think understanding that and kind of warding that off. And similarly, people have, I think, Rightly, to some extent, there are deep connections between this sort of utopian thinking and a sort of animating impulse, impulses at work in like religion. And I think I actually think that's OK. And that's something I talk about in the essay. But I think that's maybe another source of resistance here. And I think should be should warrants engagement. And is, is did you have a personal recommendation in terms of something that is more future positive, like a book or a movie or something like that? I mean, I like, yeah, I, I mean, so there's this book, The Precipice by Toby Ord, which is a, a book I helped with. So I'm I'm kind of biased here, but I think it does the the last chapter, chapter eight, I think is like a nice statement of kind of the the kind of possible stakes of a really good future. And there's also an essay by Nick Bostrom, Letter from Utopia, that I think has, has some, some kooky parts, but has been a, an important component for me. Yeah, I think those are, those are both great recommendations. We have on the Existential Hope website, we have a lot of like these types of resources listed that people have recommended and those two are definitely definitely on there both of them actually i'll throw in i'll throw in one more that i think is under underappreciated so will mccaskill's book on what we owe the future there's a there's a little what a qr code at the end that links to a story that he wrote that is sort of his vision of of a kind of really good future which i think so that's another one you could check out yeah, I I came across that one afterwards, I think it's called. And that was my favorite one of those that I've read so far. I think it because it it contained like this where people have the ability to talk to animals, which I always like. Those are my favorite futures always when I come across those. Yeah, is there is there anything else that in terms of what you've been working and writing on in relation to the future that you think we haven't really gotten into? We, we've talked about the infinite ethics and these like thoughts on utopia. Is, is there anything else we should try to touch on as well? Hmm. Well, I mean, I think there's a frame that I think has been more salient to me recently, though I'm still trying to understand it well, which is, and this is also something in Nick Bostrom's work, which is in addition to kind of thinking entirely in terms of how do we have a good future for ourselves, I think there's a, a frame on understanding kind of humanity or, or Earth's technological trajectory as as also a sort of 
entering into what what might be a sort of community throughout the universe of of kind of advanced civilizations and it's sort of unclear what there's different types of kind of exotic forms of interaction these kind of advanced civilizations can have it, it, it's a question of whether our particular like the, the kind of causally accessible part of our our light cone is has any other intelligent life in it it looks like maybe not um but you know there are sort of more exotic more exotic modes of interaction between between civilizations that you know i, I i've spent like a little bit of time thinking about i think that and i think one if you if you get into that mindset then there's actually a sort of where you're kind of less alone and you're more like there's a kind of already quite a lot of of intelligent civilization somewhere then i think there's a a, a somewhat different frame which is like how do you be a good citizen of that of the kind of cosmos as a whole or what what are kind of productive and 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 healthy and kind of cooperative and harmonious forms of interaction between kind of everyone not just kind of people on earth or ais but sort of everyone everywhere and anyway there's that's a, it's a it's a kind of exotic domain but it's one that i th- i think is kind of both interesting and possibly kind of relevant but also it's just a kind of I think it's a, a kind of intuition pump of, of what is citizenship and what what do our what are the norms and, and kind of virtues that we bring to um, our, our interactions with human society? What 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 would that look if we sort of extrapolated to a kind of a broader a kind of broader context as well? Yeah, I think it's super interesting how you're using like your philosophy background and applying it to these, yeah, potentially, hopefully I guess some might say at least real world scenarios. Yeah, but how in terms of because to, that's such we we may never know if we're if there are others in the universe and, and these things but do you think that even though just like thinking about these things like you said it sort of helps you think about what what does it mean to be a citizen and like being a good citizen and all of these things do you think that it's useful to think about these things like so far out anyway because it helps us see also clearly like where we are today here now i'm i'm not sure exactly what level of useful that particular frame is i think part of it is that i think there can be a vibe in some of these contexts where especially in the context of ai alignment where the central narrative people use to kind of frame what they're doing is is something akin to a kind of competition for power between different value systems so the fear is that the ais are sort of they're going to have different values for from us and there's sort of the resources are scarce and the question is sort of which value systems end up with rich resources and stuff like this and i think this can the vibe of this can end up kind of voracious and kind of competitive and uncooperative and so i, I i'm interested in sort of ways in which that framing can neglect the sort of mm, accumulated wisdom of things like kind of like whatever's going on with things like liberalism and property rights and kind of how, how do we like leave agents different like boundaries and, and and a domain in which they can like act autonomously and we don't interfere there's just like a bunch of stuff that i think this a very naive ontology of kind of rational agents just like competing for resources doesn't necessarily capture and i think there's there are questions about like what level of abstraction those considerations are relevant but i have some sense that thinking about citizenship and kind of boundaries and a bunch of other things might be might be useful as we as we start to enter a world with kind of agents that are potentially much more different than the the kind of other different agents we we've been used to interacting with yeah yeah no uh, that's true that it uh, if we stay too much in our current like scarcity mindset i guess that it doesn't really yeah help us in this in this situation or it doesn't really get to the truth i guess yeah no okay well, so is there anything you think we can do to prepare better for this crazy future that we may be heading towards? I mean, I think a basic thing, I mean, to some extent, all of this, all of this work on 
on existential risk and, and other things is, is about preparing for a potentially crazy future. I think one one intervention that I'll flag here is I think just like interventions that that aim to improve our epistemology and our wisdom more broadly, I think seem pretty robustly useful. There are questions about how can we be doing better forecasting and maybe AI-assisted forecasting? How can we be using AIs to kind of help us discern the truth about things or kind of reason well or kind of understand our values well, deliberate well, kind of cooperate well? So there's a, there's kind of a, a host of of kind of virtues in the vicinity of kind of reason and wisdom and 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 kind of clarity and truth that I think seem pretty good and and kind of important as we as we start to transition into kind of an, an especially unfamiliar environment and that that sort of new technologies might be able to help us with. Yeah, thank you, thank you. I, yeah, I, I think a lot of those. Yeah, like I said, there's a lot of transhumanists in in the foresight community, and so I think yeah, a lot of those technologies are kind of here already, I guess, or it's just, yeah, the future is here. It's just unevenly distributed. I, I think just we're only have one minute left now, but I'll ask you the final, <laughs> the final question that we ask it always is like, what's the best advice you ever got? I'm, I'm not sure if this counts as advice, but I remember, I think it was in like 2009 or eight or something, I, I visited for the first time the San Francisco Zen Center. And my memory is that the, on the bell there is when I first saw this quote, it's a quote from, from Dogen, and it's sort of written on the bell that they, that they hit. And it says something like, great is the matter of birth and death. Life is fleeting, gone, gone, awake, awake, each one, do not waste this life. And so anyway, I, and I think that's a, a word, words, words to live by. Yeah, that's beautiful. Do not waste this life. Yeah, and very powerful if you add a, add a gong to it, I guess. Yeah, thank you so much, Joe, for, for coming and sharing your thoughts on this. And we definitely have your article also on Utopia linked on the Existential Hope website. Thank you so much for coming. No, thank you for having me.